Well, my wife and I finally had the vacation that we had longed for for so many years. Back in 2013, we found out that it was cheaper to fly from Calgary, which we lived in at that time, to Hawaii than it was to fly from Calgary to Toronto, and it was crazy. And we found a really good deal, and so we went and spent our 20th anniversary there, and it was so beautiful. We left a snowy climate where everything was frozen and white to this beautiful tropical paradise, and I never wanted to leave. It was so much fun. But one of the things that we did there, or rather that my wife did there, and she surprised me, by renting this charcoal gray sports car. And I... This is not going to surprise you at all, but I looked really good driving it. I mean, it was, it was a sweet ride. And something happened to me during that week. I began to obsess over this sports car. I began thinking, if only I had this, then I would be happy. And so we had a view like this, similar to this, out the front of our condo. But I would find myself going to the back of the condo and looking out the window into the parking lot at that sweet ride. And I remember catching myself at one point because I was obsessing about this car. And I said, John, what are you doing? Here you are in the middle of paradise, celebrating 20 beautiful years with your beautiful wife. And all you can think about is how miserable you are because you don't own the car that you've been gifted to drive this week. And I remember just catching myself and just thinking, this is really bizarre. What is wrong with me? But what is it about the human heart that we say things like this, maybe not out loud, but we say it to ourselves: if only I had this, then I would be happy. It may be the ideal car, it may be the ideal house, it may be simply an upgrade to get a better version of what we already got. What is it about us that just thinks, if I could just get that, then everything will be all right, I will have arrived. What happens if you could actually get everything that you wanted? Would you be happy? Would you be a joyful, joy-filled person? Let me put the question this way. What if you could have everything you've ever wanted, but you didn't have the ability to enjoy it? That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? We're going to resume our study this week of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to hear the ancient sage, one of the most wealthy persons and most famous persons of the ancient world. And we're going to hear him tell us that money and wealth and possessions cannot buy us happiness. And the reason it cannot buy us happiness is because happiness does not come with anything that we own. It is not in the power of things to grant us the, satis the satisfaction, the deep joy and desire for happiness that we all want. And that's because there's no power within it to grant it. That kind of joy, that kind of happiness, that kind of satisfaction only comes as a gift of a sovereign God. And so as we jump back into our study this week in chapter 5, we're going to call our study today, Joy Doesn't Come With a Price Tag. And so let's pause for just a moment and pray and ask the Lord to do what we have been singing about. Make, make him our highest treasure to break up our hard and stony hearts so that we might receive this word today. Let's pray. Lord, as we get ready to open these ancient scriptures, 
to the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that Jesus himself read, that he studied, that he prayed over, that formed his own sense of identity and mission. Would you help us to receive what is being said today? We thank you for this ancient sage who speaks to us through the centuries, who wants us to hear something very important. And so we thank you for preserving his words for us, and we ask that you would break up our hearts, the stony ground that might prevent this word from taking root, and plant your word deep down in us, and cause it to bear truth. Show us how you are our treasure, and Christ is our exceedingly great inheritance. So meet us wherever we are this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to borrow a seven kind of seven hooks to hang our thoughts on from Daniel Aiken and Jonathan Aiken in their book on exalting Jesus in Ecclesiastes. They said it so succinctly because what this ancient sage is going to do is he's going to give us seven statements back to back to back to try to convince us something that maybe you and I know at some deep level, but, but we live contrary to. And so the first thing he's going to tell us is that money and wealth, possessions, can never satisfy us because, first of all, we will simply never have enough. This is his shot across the bow. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And here we see that word vanity, which goes throughout the scriptures. We've noted before in our study that this is the word in Hebrew, which means vapor or smoke. It's used metaphorically sometimes to talk about that which is an enigma, something that doesn't make sense. You, you try to grab hold of the meaning but it slips from your hands. And he says, look, the person who loves money will never have enough. The person who loves his wealth will never be satisfied with his income. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul will talk about the love of money, and he'll describe it as this craving. This is what Solomon is talking about, this craving for more and more. Now, Someone might say, okay, look, I know a preacher is supposed to say, you know, money is not the end-all, be-all of everything. But these are some ancient words of wisdom from the king of Israel. We're meant to hear his voice speaking to us. And this man himself knew what he was talking about. He had more money than a person could spend in 10 lifetimes. In fact, early in our study of Ecclesiastes, we made note that at the height of his career, he had 666 talents of gold coming into his coffers. And we noted, and I stumbled over trying to even say it, that he, that's the equivalent of today's wealth of about $1.2 billion in gold. It may not have been exactly that same amount then, but proportionally, he had more than he could spend. It was enormous. And we're told that his wealth was greater than anyone in the ancient world. So if there's anyone who has street credibility to talk to us about this issue, about how money and wealth can never satisfy us like we think it will, then it's Solomon. I love what Randy Alcorn says in his book, Happiness. He said, while many would say that money can't buy happiness, nearly everyone wants to test the theory. <laughs> I know I do, right? <laughs> so the, the second thing that the stage is going to tell us is that money can never satisfy you because it will attract leeches. Listen to what he says in verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? What's he saying here? 
He's saying when, when wealth increases, when money increases, so do those increase who want a piece of the pie. And he says, look, the owner can do nothing but just sit there and watch these leeches grow in number. Douglas Sean O'Donnell in his commentary on Ecclesiastes put it like this. When goods increase, so do its consumers. When people become rich, they will need a maid to clean their house, a gardener to trim their lawn, a nanny to watch their kids, a chauffeur to drive their car, an accountant to keep their books, a broker to invest their money, a bodyguard to protect themselves and their family. All these people and more have to be paid. In addition, the tax man will require a good cut, and charities will fill their mailboxes with uh, requests for donations. They will also discover that they have many so-called friends who would like to relieve them of their money. Maybe you saw this summer the article about Johnny Depp and how much debt he has accumulated. You know Johnny Depp is that great and talented actor who made a ton of money through his craft and trade. In fact, we're told that at the height of Pirates of the Caribbean 2 and 3, his income was $650 million. And he discovered, as recently as this summer, that he is now $100 million in debt. And yeah, you stop and ask the question, you say, how can that be? How is that even possible? People Magazine had an inventory of some of the things that Johnny Depp had spent his money on. We're told that he spent $75 million on 14 residencies, including a 45-acre chateau in France, a chain of islands in the Bahamas, houses in Los Angeles, and penthouses in Hollywood. He spent tens of millions of dollars on collectibles, on memorabilia, on art, so much so that he had to have 12 storehouses to store them all, and it cost him a million dollars for someone to archive them for him. He spent $30,000 a month on expensive wines from around the world, $200,000 a month on private planes, $18 million to acquire and renovate a 150-foot yacht, an additional $350,000 per month just to maintain that yacht. He spent $300,000 a month, or $3.6 million a year, on 40 full-time employees, and $150,000 a month, or $1.8 million a year, on security, private security guards. And he spent $10 million over the years supporting various friends and family. He has now got himself tied up in a lawsuit, suing his former financial business managers, and they're countersuing him now, saying they tried to warn him about his extravagant spending, and he's losing even more money now. Can you stop and think about $100 million in debt? I mean, what would it like to be like to have a million dollars in debt? And that's the world that I, I can't even conceive. But a hundred million dollars in debt. And so when Solomon says, money's not going to buy you satisfaction, you will never be satisfied. I wonder if Johnny Depp would say, I know what he's talking about. When he says, when money increases, so do those who want a piece of the pie. I think he would say that. But I think you would also agree probably with what Solomon is going to tell us next. Money can never satisfy you because you will not sleep well. This is what he says in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
this ancient king as he looks over the vast wealth of his kingdom and all the people that he hires and employs to take care and manage that. Looks at some of his laborers and he sees them having a good night of sleep. He's well fed himself. He parties every night. But he's up at night. Anxiety, worry, thinking about this and thinking about that. And he doesn't sleep well. Solomon says, take it from me. That money that can buy you the nicest beds to sleep upon, if it holds primacy of place in your heart, you will not sleep well. He's also going to say something interesting here. He's, he's going to tell us that money can never satisfy you because you'll hurt yourself. He says in verse 13, this is a grievous evil. One person translated this as a sickening tragedy. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. We're, in a sense, invited to imagine what that might be like, because he doesn't really go into detail here. I wish he would have. But Solomon says, look, one of the things that is a sickening tragedy is that when those who love money and see their goods increase, they, they keep it to their own hurt. Maybe with the, the paranoia of those who want more and more of it, they become less and less generous. Maybe, maybe they use it to manipulate other people. We're not sure exactly what he says here, but we, we're left to imagine how a person might keep these riches to his own hurt. If a person loves money and loves wealth, and that becomes, to borrow a phrase from Golem, they're precious, then that becomes a consuming fire in their own life, and it begins to hurt. Another reason he gives us about why money and wealth can never satisfy is because you'll never truly be secure. He goes on to say at the end of verse 13 and end of 14, those riches that are accumulated were lost in a bad venture, and he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. We're not told what this bad venture was. But when you have money and you invest it, you always risk the bad venture, right? You always risk losing that money. And here he sees a person who has done that, and he says, look, that man has hurt himself. He's, he's hurt his family because he has nothing left to pass on to those who come after him. In my preparation for this study, I, I came across this statistic that basically said that the average salary of an NFL player it's somewhere between $2.4 million if you play for Miami <laughs> and $4.71 million if you play for someone like Atlanta. And I know some people get paid way more than that. Some people get paid less. But these players have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars going through their fingers. And what I found amazing was that within two years of leaving the NFL, 78% are in financial distress. The average career of an NFL player is two years in which they receive hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And within two years of leaving the NFL, eight out of 10 are in financial distress. Who of us can forget the story of Vince Young? He was the championship quarterback for the Texas Longhorns. He went on to play eight years in the NFL, primarily with the Tennessee Titans. But over his career, he made $35 million. And by his own admission, he didn't really keep track of what he was spending money on. And he trusted people to spend the money for him. And in 2014, he, fi he filed uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. 
And as he's looking through his papers, he said, I'm looking through everything I owe, and my signature has been forged on things. I never spent money on this. Your wealth is never secure. The next thing that this sage is going to tell us is money can never really truly bring you the satisfaction you, you want, you long for, because you're going to leave it all behind. Verse 16, this also is a grievous evil, a sickening tragedy. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there from him or to him who toils for the wind? Solomon summarizes our pursuit of wealth and money and the accumulation of things as a striving for, a toiling for, a working for the wind. That wind being something that looks like you could maybe harness and grasp, but it, it, it eludes your grasp. It goes through your fingers. Someone has said you never see a U-Haul pulling a hearse. I actually saw a picture, and this is probably staged, of a U-Haul behind a hearse. But it gets the absurd message across, doesn't it? You can't take it with you. As Job said, naked you come into this world and naked you will leave. You'll need someone else to dress you as you lie in that coffin. Wealth can't bring you the satisfaction, the happiness you desire, because you're going to leave it all behind. He's already told us in the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to leave if you have any left over to those who come after you, and who knows if they're going to spend it wisely. Who knows if they're not going to destroy themselves with what you leave them. And here's the, the last thing before he pivots. Money can never satisfy you because you will be a miserable person. Verse 17, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. I think in the book of Ecclesiastes, we hear the voice of an older, chastened Solomon who had everything he wanted and how his life went off track as he began accumulating wives and building cities to house all his possessions and his heart strayed after God. And he says, look, at the end of the day, you're eating in darkness. I think the image is you're, you're alone. You're by yourself. There's much vexation. There's much regret. There's sickness, probably from anxiety and stress and anger. Can you imagine having all the money you could possibly spend in 10 lifetimes and you end up angry? What you thought was going to bring you happiness leaves you in a very, very dark place. Early in our series, I made reference to this song, Hurt by Johnny Cash. And we referenced that little line where he talks about his empire of dirt. And this is a, it's an incredible song. If you haven't heard it, let me encourage you to, to listen to it. But he's talking about just being there with everything that he has, but it's not a satisfaction. And so the song begins like this. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. The needle tears a hole, the old familiar sting. Try to kill it all away, but I remember everything. What have I become? My sweetest friend. Everyone I know goes away in the end. And we're, asked, we're left asking, 
Who is this friend he's talking about? Everyone goes away in the end. He's talking about these things he's using to hurt himself. I think that's what he's saying. And then he says it here at the end. You can have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. And I will make you hurt. It's a stunning admission from a man who has everything. He calls it his empire of dirt. Not only is he hurting himself in the end, surrounded with all this wealth, but he says, I'm, I'm going to end up hurting you as well. What have I become? And so Solomon, this ancient, ancient sage, is, he's going to pivot at this point. And he's going to tell us essentially what he's been telling us here. Joy doesn't come with a price tag, but it does come as a gift from God. Look what he says in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. He says, when I look at life in the few short days that we've been given, what is good and fitting is that a person actually does find enjoyment. But where does it come from? He goes on and says in verse 19, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. There's something else that the person who loves money doesn't take into account. That is the ability to enjoy it. Here the sage tells us that God gives gifts. And sometimes he gives people gifts of wealth and possessions. But there's also something else that's needed. A gift to enjoy it. Johnny Cash, what have I become? Here's this empire of dirt hurting himself, hurting others as well. Without the ability to enjoy it. And here the sage says, look, this gift of enjoyment, it's not found inherently in the things that you're after. It comes as a gift of God. He says in verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What a beautiful phrase. One of the gifts that God gives is an occupation with joy. We can say in one sense that God desires to give joy. He desires for us to enjoy life and to be able to enjoy the things that we have. But this comes as a gift from God. And so someone asks, why doesn't God give this gift to everyone? That's a good question, isn't it? Solomon says not everyone has this gift, the power to enjoy life, to enjoy things. Remember what Solomon's talking about. He's talking about the person who loves money. This is the person who, who thinks it can buy him happiness, who, who thinks that this is what they need in order to be happy, in order to have joy. And so if this is first and foremost in a person's heart, if this is what they want more than anything, including God, then God can't give this person the gift to enjoy that. Happiness does not exist apart from God. 
This last week, I was listening to this song by Imagine Dragons. It's a song called Demons. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but it has this, this haunting line in it. They sing, no matter what we breed, we still are made of greed. This is my kingdom come. This is my kingdom come. What are they saying? They seem to be saying that this is what humans do. We breed, we create more humans, and it seems that we're made of greed. Whether we have a lot or whether we have not very much, this drive within people, this craving for more, they say is what we're made of. This is what we live for. This is our kingdom come. This is what we want at the end of the day. And they're riffing off the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray when he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That phrase kingdom come is a prayer that Jesus wants us to pray all the time. That we would want God's kingdom above all for this world to be set right. But here imagine dragons sing about their kingdom. The kingdom of greed. If that's what we live for, There's no power to enjoy that. And God can't give that because it's not to be had. It doesn't exist. Solomon goes on in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, There is an evil I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoyed them. This is a vanity. It's a grievous evil. He says, look, I see something weighing heavily upon humanity. This group of people, we might say, with Imagine Dragons, who are made of greed. God gives all kinds of gifts, but he doesn't give the power to enjoy them. Have you ever connected the idea that enjoyment in life is a gift of God, but it cannot be ultimate? It cannot be what we try to get with every fiber of our being. It is like smoke. You grab hold of it, and it's gone when we love money. He goes on, and he says something that's a little bit disturbing here. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. I want to say, Solomon, that's insensitive. Many of us have experienced miscarriage. How can you say that a person who has lived and fathered children and has so much stuff and yet isn't satisfied with it, that a stillborn child is is better off? How can you say that? That's, That's insensitive. That's... I think Solomon would say, I know the analogy is weighty. And I know for some people it's painful. But don't miss the point I'm trying to get across. He goes on and says, verse 4, For it, that is the stillborn child, comes in vanity. That is, it comes with fleetingness. And it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. 
even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoys no good. Do not all go to one place. Solomon says, look, there is a tragedy on both ends. There's a tragedy when a child is born and dies or a miscarriage happens, but there's also a tragedy that takes place when a person lives and he lives and he lives. And even if he were to live a thousand years twice over for two millennia, but does not have the ability to enjoy life, they both end up in the same place. He says the stillborn child has the advantage of finding rest. And this person, for all the striving, for all the craving, does not get the life they want. And then he says this, this is, he's wrapping it up for us. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. We work and work to fill our, to fill our stomachs, to, to satisfy our souls, but we're not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? And he says this. This is where he caps it off. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. What is he saying here? He's putting a, a proverb in front of us to consider. Better is the person who can see and appreciate the things that are right in front of them than the person whose appetite is always calling, or always inviting them, always enticing them to say just a little bit more, just another dollar, just another house, just another this, just another that. He says better is the person who can see what's right in front of them than the person who is never, ever satisfied. And so my friends, let's put this into application, just a few uh, quick points here. Let's heed the wake-up call. Let's heed this wake-up call. I mean, Solomon wants us to understand something. Money will never satisfy us. And so what I want you to do in just this moment of time, as we've gathered together, is to ask yourself the question, what, what is God trying to get me to see? Why is he bringing this to my attention today? How am I to understand the cravings of my life in light of this passage? What is it I'm trying to wake up from? Jesus says, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus himself, capitalizing on what Solomon would tell us, is take care, guard your heart. Guard your heart against covetousness. What is that? It's the desire for more and more. Jesus says, watch out. Wake up. Be on your guard. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I wonder, do we believe Jesus? Sure, money doesn't buy happiness, but we like to try, wouldn't we? Jesus says, watch out. Be very careful. Guard against that desire that tells you you can be happy if you had just a little bit more. Jesus' right-hand man to the Roman Empire put it like this. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6 says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
I think all of us need to say he's talking directly to us. Whether there's this overwhelming craving for more, or whether it's just for the fact that you and I live in a very wealthy nation. My family and I had the privilege of living in Peru for a couple years. And there, half the country lived, lived on less than a dollar a day. You and I could not fathom living on less than a dollar a day. And so I think we need to hear the Apostle Paul standing on the shoulders of Solomon, standing on the shoulders of Jesus, saying to us, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice he doesn't say money is evil, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Here, Paul is writing to his young protege in the faith, Timothy. He says, look, some of us, some of, those, some of us who call Jesus our Lord and Savior have wandered away from the faith and pierced ourselves with all kinds of pains. Why? Because we crave money. That's what we live for. The promise it holds out for us we buy into the lie. So my friends, I think we need to understand this. One of the greatest competitors to God for the loyalty of our hearts is the love of money. Jesus put it like this. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says it's either or. Not both and. Either or. Second point of application is let's receive God's greatest gift. I mean, Solomon's been telling us already that God gives gifts. He does give us life. He does give us things. He can give us the power to enjoy them. But let's make no mistake. Those are all periphery to the greatest gift that Jesus has to offer, or to God has to offer to us, which is his own son, Jesus, who brings us into the presence of God. This is how Paul would put it to the people living in Corinth, seeking to follow Jesus. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that he that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And a lot of people would look at this and go, oh great, Jesus died so that I could be wealthy. I don't think that's what he's getting at there. Jesus left the throne of heaven. He had everything. And he came. And he became impoverished to the point where he left this world naked as his life dripped out on a cross to make the atonement for the sins of people like you and me. He became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. What's he talking about? He's not talking about our bank account. He's talking about something much greater than that. He's talking about your relationship with God, the creator, the one that we sang about earlier. Remember what we said? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, you are my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. This is what Jesus died to give us. Access to God, relationship with him, eternal life in his kingdom. My friends, is that the treasure of your heart? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and yet loses his soul. Jesus said you can have it all. 
and miss the point of life. You can actually lose your soul. So which, which is it? Is it God or money? Last point of application. Let's put our hope in God and not in riches. God may give you wealth. He may give you more money than you can spend in 10 lifetimes. But don't put your hope in that. Don't let that become your God. Don't let that become the treasure that you cling to. Paul will go on and say in 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, I think he would mean us. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for their future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So my friends, may you enjoy above all the God of all gifts.